Well, good morning again. It's a good morning to be in the house of the Lord. Would you bow with me once more, and let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, thank you that, again, your word is alive, it is active, and it is for us today. Help us to receive it as such. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Grant us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and hands and feet to act in obedience with what you would call us to do. I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen my voice, and I pray that you would give me boldness to speak your word as you would have me. In Jesus' name, amen. Begin this morning with a story of a professor who began his first day of class at a university by dramatically telling his students that he would prove for them then and there that God did not exist. Then he would look dramatically up towards the ceiling, spread out his arms and call out, God, if you really exist, I would like you to knock me off this platform and I'll give you 15 minutes to prove you exist. He then started a timer, or, or a, a, a timer on his desk with 15 minutes on it, and he would then periodically pace back and forth on his platform, and then he would look up towards the heavens once more and taunt God, taunt God by saying things like, God, can you hear me? God, are you deaf? Don't you care that I'm about to disprove your existence to all of these students? He would then turn and smile smugly at the class as he continued to make his point. Finally, as the clock on his desk ticked past 14 minutes, the professor, with head up, eyes closed, and arms outstretched, called out dramatically, Here I am, God. I'm still waiting for you to prove that you're real, so knock me off this platform right now. And the students watched intently as the clock ticked past 14 minutes, 50 seconds. And then suddenly and unexpectedly, like a bolt of lightning, a burly 240-pound halfback from the school's football team came flying through the classroom door, down the aisle, lowered his shoulder into the professor's chest, knocking him clear off the platform and into the first row of students. Well, needless to say, everyone was stunned, none more so than the professor. Finally, More shocked than hurt, he sputtered out the words, Why on earth did you do that? And the football player, with a grin from ear to ear, replied as he walked away, God heard you, and he sent me. (laughs) Well, today, we are continuing our sermon series in Exodus entitled, The Way Out. And we pick up where we left off last week with, God's unexpected call on Moses from within a burning bush of all things. In Exodus chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10, we read God's call on Moses' life. He says to him, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. We could call this God's great commission for Moses. For God had heard the Israelites' cries, and now like a 240-pound halfback, God was sending Moses to knock Pharaoh into the first row and free his people. But the question comes to mind. Why send Moses? Couldn't God have just done it himself? Well, of course God could have just done it himself. Just as certainly as God could have knocked that 
professor off the platform without the help of the fullback. God could have knocked Pharaoh off the throne and freed his people without the help of Moses. But this is a very important thing that I don't want you to miss this morning. Though God didn't need Moses, God wanted Moses. And this leads us to our first principle for our text this morning. God invites us into a partnership with him. God invites us to partner with him in his mission for the world. We see this all the way from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. You see, God could have named all of the animals that he'd created. Remember, he was the one who had handcrafted every last one of the the many thousands and even millions of species upon the earth. But what does God do? He brings them all by Adam to see what he would name them. It's a partnership. God's done all the hard work, but he invites Adam to partner with him in naming the animals. Later on in the time of Noah, we see that God could have saved Noah and his family and the animals some other way. He could have done it himself, but what does he get Noah to do? He gets Noah to build the ark. Then, much later, following his resurrection, our Lord Jesus could have physically stuck around to oversee the church. He could have stuck around to personally preach the gospel message to every last corner of the earth. But what does he do? Instead, he chooses 12 ragtag disciples, and he invites them to partner with him. He equips and trains them, and then just before leaving them, he commissions them to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. God, from the very beginning, is inviting man to partner with him in his work for the world. And just as God chose them, just as God chose Moses, God chose you and me. In fact, every disciple of Jesus Christ has been invited by God, commissioned by Jesus, to partner with him in freeing people from slavery to sin and leading them into the promised land of salvation and life in God's kingdom, both here and eternally. It's a very high calling. It is indeed a privilege to be invited to partner with Almighty God in his redemptive mission for the world. So here's the gut check question. It's a privilege, but do we really want the job? Do we really want to enter into partnership with what God is doing in the world? Well, we look at the example of Moses and we see that he didn't want the job at all. As we saw last week, his first response to God's call, the commission I just read for you was, Who am I? That was his very first response. Who am I that I should lead the people out of slavery? And this leads us to our second principle from our text this morning. The first being that God invites us to enter into partnership with him. And the second, God's not looking at our qualifications, but our availability. Moses seemed to believe that if he were to try to go and deliver the people once more, he would mess up and fail just as he had the first time. And so he makes a total of ten objections and uses five different excuses as he gives all of the reasons to God as to why he's chosen the wrong man for the job. See if you resonate with any of Moses' excuses. Excuse number one was, of course, I'm not qualified. He just didn't feel up for the job. He wasn't qualified. Excuse two, I don't have all the answers. 
What if the people ask who has sent me to, to deliver them? And what if I don't know what to tell them? He didn't have all the answers. Excuse two. Excuse three. What if the people don't believe me? Excuse number four. I'm not a good public speaker. I've never been eloquent. Anyone here afraid of public speaking? <laughs> There's a few honest hands going up. Who wants to come to the front? Anyone? <laughs> we can get over it right now. We'll face your fears. Well, Moses used that as an excuse. I'm not a good public speaker. And excuse number five, someone else can do it better than me. Now, it's obvious that Moses didn't feel qualified. But God was not looking at Moses' resume. God was simply looking at his availability. So if you don't feel qualified to partner with God in carrying out Jesus' commission to the world, well, then join the club. It includes not only Moses, but every single prophet and missionary and teacher and preacher who's ever lived, including yours truly. I've told you the story many different times of how when I was a a 19-year-old, serving as the program, program director at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. And there, in the, the heat of ministry, I had a brief reprieve in the middle of summer, and I found myself at home, face down on my bedroom floor, essentially handing in my resignation letter to God. I just felt so overwhelmed by what he'd called me to do, and I saw my own sin and my own failures so clearly that I just finally just said, you've got the wrong guy. You've got the wrong man. I'm too weak. I can't do what you're calling me to do. But as I did this, face down on my bedroom floor, the Holy Spirit began to whisper within my mind a reassuring reply to every single one of my objections. And I don't know what all of my objections were. I'm pretty sure there was more than ten. I think I doubled whatever Moses' objections list was. But I was just pouring out all of the reasons why I couldn't do what God was calling me to do And there was a rebuttal coming within me. I would say, I can't do this. Yes, you can. I'm a failure. No, you're not. And this went on and on to the point that I began to wonder if I was going crazy. It was like I was having this argument in my own mind. And so finally, I prayed and I asked, God, is that you? And the reply that came whispering back in my mind was, Danny, who else do you think it would be? (laughs) And so then I prayed, well, Lord, if that's you, what do you want me to do? And the next whispered reply was, open your Bible. And so there in the dark on the floor, I reached out and grabbed my Bible, which was lying at the head of my bed. In the dark, I randomly flipped it open. I turned on the light. I dropped my finger on the page. And my finger was on Joshua chapter 1. I won't read the whole passage, but verse 9 really jumped out at me. It was as clear as if God had showed up in person in the room and spoke the words directly to me. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And so finally, with all of my objections answered, all of my arguments overcome, I told God, well, if you can still use me, weaknesses and all, Then I give you my life. Use me however you want for the rest of it. Some years later, I had Leanne draw me Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, and I'll show it to you this morning. 
because I like bragging about my wife once in a while. She does beautiful things like this. And uh, she drew this for me. It became my life verse because God called me with this verse. And I can't tell you how many times this picture, it sits up on the shelf in my office, and I can't tell you how many times sitting in my office chair with whatever I'm dealing with, whatever I'm, I'm preparing for, I've had to look up at this and read these words, and it stands as a constant reminder to me of God's call on my life and his promise that no matter how hard it is, no matter how discouraged I might feel in the moment, he hasn't left me. And if he hasn't left me, then I can keep going. And I can't imagine how many times, even as we saw in the video, that Moses had to be reminded of the call. That God said, no matter how weak you feel, remember, I will be with you. And how many times Moses had to face the disbelief and the outright hostility of the people, that God would have reminded him of the call. I have not left you. Nothing has changed. Keep going. And you see, God has promised that whatever he has called us to do in his name, in his service, he will provide the resources and the power and the ability to do the work that he has called us to do. All that's up to us to provide is our availability and an obedient spirit. That's it. If we provide our availability to say, God, I'm here, use me, and then we have an obedient spirit to say, correct me, teach me, guide me, I want to learn. God does the rest. As has been said many times by many before me, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. This applied to Moses. It applies to me, and it applies to you as well. It applies to every last one of us. Whatever God calls you to, he will qualify and equip you to do the work as you rely upon him. The third principle from our text this morning is the one that I want to focus most of our attention on. It's hard to leave Midian, but we must. Now I want you to take your Bibles and flip ahead to Exodus chapter 4 and verses 13 and 14. Now we've been sort of cherry picking through this narrative because we've read it a few times and I'm jumping around a little bit, but I want to draw your attention So the one thing in all of Moses' many objections and excuses, the one thing in all of them that stirs God's anger. And we find this in Exodus 4, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. You see, honest-to-goodness trying and failing in God's service does not evoke God's anger. It will evoke his grace, it will evoke his encouragement, and possibly his correction, but never his anger. But if you want a surefire way to evoke God's anger against you, do what Moses did. And when God asks you, prompts you to do something in his service, just tell him, send someone else. Now, I don't know about you, but having the Lord's anger burn against me doesn't sound like a lot of fun. It doesn't sound like a place that any one of us would want to be, is having the Lord's anger burn against us because we refuse to partner in what he's calling us to do. This doesn't sound like a place any Christian 
would want to find themselves. And you know what Moses was really telling God by saying, send someone else? What Moses was saying in essence was this. I want to stay in Midian. I want to stay right where I am. You see, after 40 years, Moses had gotten quite used to the simple life of a shepherd in Midian. Sure, he'd spent the earlier 40 years as a prince in Pharaoh's court, but that was long past now. But the simple life raising his family in the wilderness of Midian was what he knew. Sure, it wasn't overly exciting, but he knew how it worked. It was predictable. He could provide for his family, and above all, it was safe. On the flip side, following God's call to Egypt would be exciting, sure, but highly unpredictable, with no idea of how he would provide for his family, and above all, it would be extremely dangerous. And I'm quite sure that Moses rationalized within himself that he was not rejecting God, he was just rejecting God's call on his life. So what was the big deal? You know, he could just stay in Midian. He still believed in God. He could still worship and serve God while living peacefully in Midian, couldn't he? And the modern-day disciple of Jesus Christ faces the same dilemma. He or she believes in God, has trusted Jesus as personal Savior, but in a spiritual sense, is comfortable in Midian. So when the Holy Spirit comes calling them into a greater level of service and to fully embrace Jesus' great commission as their own, they, like Moses, balk and say, God, I believe in you. I believe that your mission is important. But please send someone else. And though they sense that deep down, their life, if they were to do so, something is missing and that they would miss out on the great adventure of fully embracing God's invitation to partner with him and his commission to go into the world, life in Midian is what they know. It's predictable. They can provide for their family. It's stable, and above all else, it's safe. So how about you? Are you spiritually stuck in Midian? Do you recall perhaps a time in your life where you sensed the Holy Spirit calling you to greater service in some specific way and you said to God, any one of the above, God, I'm, I'm unqualified, I'm unequipped, I'm unprepared, I'm, I'm too busy with something else. Oh Lord, just please send someone else. Well, if you've done that and you've stayed in that place, then spiritually you're stuck in Midian. It's a place where you believe in God, you believe his mission's important, but you are unavailable to be fully used of God in his great mission to the world. Now, I don't think I have to say this. I think it's so obvious that the words don't even need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyways. My brothers and sisters, this is not what God wants for us. Spiritual Midian is spiritual death. To not follow God's call into the great commission of the world is spiritual death and stagnation. And at the end of the day, I'm not going to say such a person's not saved. That's the Lord's business. Your soul may very well be saved and you're going to heaven. But when the Lord's anger is burning against us because we refuse to enter into his great mission, this is very serious, not something to take lightly. Jesus 
has called us. For just as God called Moses out of Midian, God is calling us, you and me, he's calling this church, his church, out of Midian and into a wholehearted partnership with him in the greatest rescue mission this world has ever seen. My friends, I know it's hard to leave Midian. But if we desire to be fully used of God, we must. So when the Spirit of God comes calling, we must leave the comforts of what we know and in faith step out of our comfort zone and into God's zone. Because it is then and only then that we will see God's full power unleashed in our lives and in the world which we live. And I don't know about you, but the world I'm looking at right now is in desperate need of God's full power being unleashed. And you know who he wants to unleash it through? Us, his church. But we have to step out in faith. Because remember, until Moses did so, he was just a shepherd in Midian. The Moses that we know and remember does not exist yet. He's a nobody. He hasn't done anything great yet. It's only until he steps out in faith that the great Moses that we remember comes into existence. Now maybe right now, you're not quite sure where you stand, and maybe it feels like you've got one foot in Midian and the other following God's call to Egypt, but it's tearing you apart. Well, to help you diagnose your current commitment to God's call on your life, this leads us to our fourth and final point. I'm going to give you three T's for diagnosing whether you're stuck in Midian or obediently following God's call on your life. And the three T's are this. They're very simple. You can jot them down if you want. They're not my thoughts. Someone else has shared these before me. But the three T's really help diagnose where we're at. And the three T's are time, treasure, and talent. Time, treasure, and talent. How much time, treasure, and talent do you have committed to the Lord's mission for the world? The first T. This is a personal one. How much time do you have invested in your relationship to God each week? How much time do you spend throughout the week praying and talking with God? How much time do you spend reading the Bible on your own, studying it, making its truth your own? How much time do you give serving in your local church? How much time do you give serving your neighbors and community with Christian love? Some folks would say to this, well, I show up to church one or two hours most weeks. And that's a start. It really is. It's a good start. But let me just say, showing up to a church service a couple times a month is hardly what you'd call serious investing. It's more like dabbling. And I know that we within the evangelical church circles are often guilty of calling out those in the mainline churches for being nominal Christians. But let me just say, Simply attending an evangelical church does not exempt anyone from being in the so-called nominal Christian category. It is our daily commitment to Jesus Christ and serving his bride, the church, that separates those who are content in Midian and those who are actively engaging in God's rescue mission to the world. So how much time are you investing in God's kingdom right now? The second T, how much of your treasure is invested in God's kingdom. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now God, of course, calls us to give of our finances to his kingdom work, and we are called to do that regularly and cheerfully. In regards to the age-old how much question that we always like to argue over, 
I will simply defer to what C.S. Lewis once wrote. He got the nail right on the head, I think. This is what he said. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid that only one safe rule applies, and that is this. We must give more than we can spare. You see, we typically think of giving in terms of stretching our budget, but I believe that God thinks of our giving in terms of stretching our faith. You see, the act of giving more than I can spare means the person must trust that God will provide accordingly. And it's the only place in all of Scripture where God actually says to us, test me in this. So how much of your treasure is invested in God's kingdom? The third T, how much of your talent do you have invested in God's kingdom work? Now maybe like Moses, you're looking at yourself and you're thinking, what talent? Well, if we return to Moses' third excuse of, what if people don't believe me? In Exodus chapter 4, verse 2, I want you to look at God's response to Moses. It was right at the beginning of our passage. Then the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? A staff, Moses replied. A staff. A simple shepherd's staff. But this was more than just a staff, for it symbolized Moses' occupation and his identity. So once Moses surrendered that simple shepherd's staff fully into God's service, that staff became the instrument of unleashing God's miracle-working power on earth. For remember, it was with that staff that we saw in the video, Moses could throw it down on the ground and it would turn into a snake. It was with that staff that he would stretch it out and enact the ten great plagues. And it was with that staff in his outstretched hand that the Red Sea would part before the children of Israel and they would walk through on dry ground. And to think, Moses called it just a staff. <laughs> just a staff indeed. So what is in your hand? What is in your hand? God asked Moses that question. He's asking you, what is in your hand? Maybe it's a wrench, a pen, a guitar, a needle or thread. Maybe it's a keyboard, a spreadsheet, a hoe, or a grain shovel. Maybe it's a microphone, a checkbook, a teacher's lesson book, or a cookbook. Maybe it's a hockey stick, or a, a stethoscope, a coach's whistle, or even a paintbrush. Whatever is in your hand can be used mightily for God's mission. But for that to happen, we have to first be willing to leave the comforts of our spiritual Midian. Because remember, so long as Moses stayed in Midian, it would always be just a shepherd's staff. But once it was yielded, it became the power of God on earth. Now for some here today, leaving spiritual Midian might, like Moses, mean a physical move of some sort possibly from a job or a chosen career path. For others, it might mean choosing to go to Bible college or yielding part or all of your summer from making money to serve God at Bible camp. For others, it might not mean a physical move, but an inner move, a move of attitude, of priority, one where you decide to fully yield your time, treasure, and talents into God's service to be used exactly where he's already placed you. I want to close with a story about a man named Charles who had a dream. As a young man, Charles dreamed of being a missionary. God 
planted this, this hope, this desire in his heart, and all of his life's intent was to go out as a cross-cultural missionary. And so he trained for the mission field, and along the way he fell in love with and married a woman who shared his vision. Together they eventually saved up enough money to be able to go abroad, but then unexpectedly his wife's health began to fail. And finally they realized that she'd never survive life on the mission field. If they went to Africa as planned, they realized she would almost certainly die. Suddenly he was confused and disillusioned. His dream would never come true. So he resigned himself to going to work for his father, a preacher and dentist with a small side business. As his father grew older, the young man took over the side business, and one day the thought struck him out of the blue that perhaps, just maybe, he could still touch the world for Christ. And so he would work hard, he would be a good steward of his resources, and see that Christ became known to as many people as possible. He would just go about it in a different way. He would keep his promise to God by financially supporting others who could go overseas as missionaries. So he worked hard. And eventually, he built that side business into a giant enterprise. And what was Charles' last name? It was Welch. You might recognize this. Charles Welch. He grew one of the largest grape juice enterprises the world has ever seen. He gave no one knows how much, because he never bragged about it, as he shouldn't have, but large, vast sums of money from that enterprise were sent and invested in missions. And it's estimated that hundreds, if not thousands, of missionaries were sent out because of Charles Welch's great investment in missions by using what God had already placed in his hand and giving it back to him. And so, through this, we can see that whatever God has placed in your hand, once surrendered fully to him, God can do more with it than you could ever imagine to further his kingdom and his mission that he has invited us to partner with for the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I am humbled and honored that you would invite me to partner with you in this great mission, for your gospel is life. Your salvation is what stands between judgment and eternal life. And thank you, Lord, that it is through this great gift of grace that we stand here today forgiven, cleansed as your children, living in your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that as you have invited each and every one of us to invest fully of our time, our treasure, and our talents in advancing your kingdom in this world, I pray, Lord, that we would do so wholeheartedly, and that where we are stuck in spiritual Midian, O Lord, give us the strength by your Holy Spirit today to say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. I will follow where you lead, even if it is unknown, even if the challenges seem great. O Lord, I will follow. Today we declare we will follow as your people. And as this church, Lord, wherever you lead, We pray that you have placed us here in this town of Clarny for a reason. So may that reason be to advance your kingdom in this town and in this world. Until you come or call us home, we give our lives to you, fully holding nothing back. In Jesus' name, amen.